All right. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. So we're going to do this Lectio Divina practice. And what that practice is, is essentially um, uh, where we're going to read through scripture. Uh, uh, it's going to be Psalm 98 from the message a few times. And we're going to pause in between and practice noticing, um, noticing what comes up for us, practice being in silence. Just going to be like, 30 seconds, but sometimes in the way that our culture is so hustle and movement driven that in itself, just being still for like half a minute or a minute can, can really stretch us. And I wanted to invite you this morning to really get comfortable in your seat. And uh, as I read the scripture, and if like a word pops up for you or a phrase that feels important that you might take a breath and notice where in your body, you notice that. Our bodies are such an amazing gift to us. Even when we have problems, our bodies can only tell the truth of what we're feeling and what we're noticing. So if you hear the word salvation, where do you feel that? Where do you connect with that? If you feel rejoicing, if you feel worship, where does that show up for you? And maybe just ponder that. And then in other times you can return to that and, and connect to that feeling. So that's kind of the focus for Lectio this morning. And you're always welcome to share uh, what you are noticing, what you are feeling. There's no right or wrong answer. We just get to notice what we notice and allow God to speak to us through the scripture, through our bodies. So let's do this together. Psalm 98, reading from the message. Sing to God a brand new song. He's made a world of wonders. God rolled up his sleeves. God set things right. God made history with salvation. God showed the world what God could do. God remembered to love us. A bonus to God's dear family Israel. Indefatigable love. The whole world comes to attention. Look, God's work of salvation. Shout your praises to God, everybody. Let loose and sing. Strike up the band. Round up the orchestra to play for God. Add a hundred voice choir. Feature trumpets and big trombones. Fill the air with praises to King God. Let the sea and its fish give a round of applause with everything living on earth joining in. Let ocean breakers call out encore and mountains harmonize the finale. A tribute to God when God comes when God comes to set the earth right, God will straighten out the whole world. God will put the world right and everyone in it. So I invite you to pause and to notice what comes up for you, what thoughts, what emotions, and where do you feel those? Where do you hold those in your body? going to read through it again. I invite you to continue noticing and to share Psalm 98. Sing to God a brand new song. God has made a world of wonders. 
God rolled up God's sleeves. God set things right. God made history with salvation. God showed the world what God could do. God remembered to love us. A bonus to God's dear family Israel, indefatigable love. The whole earth comes to attention. Look, God's work of salvation. Let your Shout your praises to God, everybody. Let loose and sing. Strike up the band. Round up an orchestra to play for God. Add on a hundred voice choir. Feature trumpets and big trombones. Fill the air with praises to God. Let the sea and its fish give a round of applause with everything living on earth joining in. Let ocean breakers call out encore and mountains harmonize the finale. A tribute to God when God comes when God comes to set the earth right. God will straighten out the whole world. God will put the world right and everyone in it. So again, I invite you to notice what you notice, to feel what you feel, and to know what you know in this quiet time. The word that stood out for me is the word salvation, which a, a lot of times there's a word that gets translated as salvation that, that means to be made whole, to be healed, to be delivered, to be set free. So as we listen the final time, I invite you just to maybe um, ponder what, what type of salvation God is bringing to the world around you and in you in your bodies, in our emotions, all those things that we want to bring and bring into wholeness. Sing to God a brand new song. He's made a world of wonders. God rolled up his sleeves and God set things right. God made history with salvation. He showed the world what God could do. God remembered to love us. A bonus to God's dear family, Israel, indefatigable love. The whole earth comes to attention. Look, God's work of salvation. Shout your praises to God, everybody. Let loose and sing. Strike up the band. Round up an orchestra to play for God. Add on a hundred voice choir. Feature trumpets and big trombones. Fill the air with praises to God. Let the sea and its fish give a round of applause with everything living on earth joining in. Let ocean breakers call out encore and mountains harmonize the finale. A tribute to God when God comes, when God comes to set the earth right. God will straighten out the whole world. God will put the world right and everyone in it. I invite you to take a breath and notice one last time what comes up for you.
Thanks for participating in this. Pass it off to the next person. Hi, good morning, everybody. I have the privilege of taking communion today. So um, please do gather your bits and pieces that you need um, for communion. Um, given this opportunity, I'm also, while, you're, while people are getting things organized, I call me old fashioned, but I've been reading a bit of 19th century poetry this week. And I came across a thing that really felt like it sat nicely for the month and it being Mother's Day by a chap called Gerard Manley Hopkins. And I thought I'd read that um, quickly before communion, if I may. It's called The May Magnificat. May is Mary's month, and I muse at that and wonder why her feasts follow reason, dated due to season. Candlemas, Lady Day, but the Lady Month, May, why fasten that upon her with a feasting in her honour? Is it only its being brighter than the most our must delight her? Is it opportunist and flowers finds soonest? Ask of her, the mighty mother. Her reply puts this other question. What is spring? Growth in everything. Flesh and fleece, fur and feather, grass and green world all together. Star-eyed, strawberry-breasted, throstle above her nested. Cluster of bugle blue eggs thin forms and warms the life within, and bird and blossom swell in sod or sheath or shell. All things rising, all things sizing, Mary sees sympathizing with that world of good, nature's motherhood. Their magnifying of each its kind with delight calls to mind how she did in her stored magnify the Lord. Well, but there was more than this, spring's universal bliss, much had much to say to offering Mary May. When drop of blood and foam dapple, bloom lights the orchard apple, and thicket and thorpe are merry with silver surfed cherry, and azuring over greybell makes wood banks and breaks wash wet like lakes, and magic cuckoo call caps, clears, and clinches all. This ecstasy all through mothering earth tells Mary her mirth till Christ's birth to remember and exaltation in God who was her salvation. So, um, communion, assuming you've all got your equipment ready, um, I'm going to say a quick prayer. Um, Jesus, when you had nothing else to give, you gave yourself. And as your friends shared and ate, they were confused and complicit, just like all of us. May we give our lives and confusions, our hollowness and our hearts, because when we give like this, we are like you who became like us. Amen. And Jesus took bread and gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this. And remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup, the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you.
I'll just pray for Sarah, who's going to talk to us today. So Lord, thank you for this Sunday. Thank you for the opportunity for us to gather. And I pray that you speak to us through Sarah this morning. Please bless her words and fill us with your love. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Harry. Um, my background today is Alouette Lake. Enjoy. Um, I would show you my office, but we're in the middle of Renault's and there is so much in my office right now, it's shocking. So uh, this is a much better view. It's much less distracting. So just enjoy the scenery behind me. Um, yeah, this is uh, Alouette looking north. If you want that look, you have to go all the way out to the end of the beach and then look up, that's what it is. I don't know what I was thinking, putting myself on Mother's Day. I am quite underqualified to talk about Mother's Day. I lost my own mother before I was a teenager and uh, I've never had children of my own, but I have mothered. So um, I read this poem a few weeks ago and I liked it and I cannot for the life of me find it again. So I cannot tell you who it's by, uh, but I'm gonna read it anyway. So it says, to all those who mother, we could not write our stories without you. Whether you grace every line, support a meaningful chapter or have faded from view too soon, we see you. The mother, to learn there are many ways to parent, to help others fly, even if that means you're grounded. Make promises, mistakes, sandwiches, and futures. To believe you don't need a break, though sometimes you feel like you might be breaking. To say the words, it takes a village, but struggle to use your voice sometimes when asking for help. To realize simple hugs, smiles, and your presence are your superpowers. To discover the beauty in coloring outside the lines. To wipe tears, mouths, counters, and repeat. To find out that sleep comes with a clause. To worry you are changing and worry that you are not. To work around the clock, yet wish that time could somehow stand still. To listen to stories about every day and stories about someday. To give and be given a gift that doesn't always fit in a box with a bow. Mother is a verb, not a noun. And I have nothing to add. And there is so much good stuff in the passages for today. I'm just going to say happy Mother's Day to all of you who mother. And we're going to pivot and move right along. Oh, I can't do that too, quick, too quickly. It disappears. But anyway. Uh, so, pivot. Let's move on. There are some weeks that I really love the lectionary passages and there are some weeks that are stupidly hard and the nuggets are buried deep. And this week is thankfully not a stupidly hard one. The nuggets aren't buried, buried too deep. It seems to me pretty straightforward. So I'm just gonna go for it. I think the passages we have this week are equal parts awesome, challenging and life-changing. And I hope that you find some life in them too. And Jesus, I pray that that would be the case, that we would find life in these passages today. We are on week six of Easter, and we're talking about the beginning of the good news of Jesus as it is spread far and wide. Last week in kids, I know you didn't do this in growing up, but in kids, we talked about um, the Holy Spirit using Philip to get the good news to Ethiopia via a eunuch in a chariot heading home, reading the book of Isaiah. There is so much in that story. And in the decision that Philip made to engage with someone who was excluded on every, I mean, pretty much, pretty much every single way. 
that you could be excluded, he was excluded, except for the thing that he wasn't a woman. But apart from that, he was fully excluded. Um, but that was last week's story. I can't talk about that one today because I don't have time for it. Um, but it's, this, this week is another story about spreading the good news about Jesus and God's radical inclusion of everyone through Jesus' life-giving birth and death-killing death. There's a really old Newsboys song, so it shows how old I am, that is called God is Not a Secret to be Kept. And the disciples have finally figured that out. And bless them, they have come a really long way from hiding in the upper room on Easter Sunday. There is a boldness and a bravery that has come on them. And that is because God has showed up in the shape of the Holy Spirit. God showing up makes all the difference. Last week, the Holy Spirit positioned Philip to tell the Ethiopians the good news and baptize, the, uh, baptize this man. In, and in today's story, God positions Peter to do the telling of the good news of Jesus to another group. But there are two ways I think that, Philip, that Peter needs positioning, both his, um, physically and also in his heart. He needed a change of heart to be able to communicate the message well. Um, I wonder if sometimes it's actually more about heart positioning than it is about actually physical positioning. Just a thought. Um, the few verses we have from Acts are right in the middle of a meeting between Cornelius and Peter. And it starts where Peter thinks that the, the bit that we're going to read today starts where Peter thinks he's done the job and he's turning around and ready to leave. Uh, but God has other ideas and shows up just as he's like, all right, see ya. I'll be out. Um, but let me set the scene. So Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He's a devout outsider. He's a God-fearing man who sees a vision of an angel telling him that God has heard his prayers. The angel tells Cornelius to send men to get Peter from Joppa, even giving him a very detailed street address of where to find him. Cornelius has no trouble hearing God for himself. That's not why he needed Peter. He needed Peter to tell him about Jesus. Like he already had the light, he already had the life. He needed the word, he needed Jesus. Meanwhile, Peter goes up on the roof to pray. Luke, the author, I think poking fun at Peter, says that uh, it's around lunchtime and the vision is because Peter's hungry. Peter saw a huge sheet suspended by four corners descending to the ground. The sheet was filled with all kinds of unclean animals, birds and reptiles. And a voice told him, get up, kill and eat. Peter like recoiled from this, like what? It can't, it's forbidden in the law, but the voice said, if God says something is clean, do not call it forbidden. Do not call it dirty. And he had this vision three times over. And he's still not quite sure what it's about. But the vision is doing the work in the ground, like in the background of his heart, so that he's ready for what's coming next. Peter is still trying to figure it out when there's a knock at the door. The Holy Spirit tells him to get up and to go with them without hesitating or arguing. The people knocking on the door have come from Cornelius, a Roman, part of the occupying force. And Peter would naturally have had a little bit of hesitation about going with them. We've been watching The Chosen. I don't know if you've seen that. It's pretty cool. And the show has like a really good rendering, I think, of how the Romans and the Jews felt about each other. Um, their relationship was not typically good. Naturally, the Jews had a great distrust and resentment and dislike of the Romans. I imagine all of this and more in Peter's mind as Cornelius's representatives stand at the door and ask him to come with them. But because of what the Spirit had just said to him, because of what had just happened, he gets up, 
picked some friends of his and they go to Cornelius' house. And now the vision he had from God all starts to fall into place for Peter. He says in verse 34, it's clear to me now that God plays no favorites. God accepts every person, whatever his or her culture or ethnic background. God welcomes all who revere him and do right. And then Peter tells them that the good news about Jesus, and uh, he tells, he like, he's ready. He's ready to go. He's like, I've done it. I'm here. It's Jesus. That's who told you to come, told me to be here, and I'm good, and we're out. Message delivered, job done, let's go home. But God had other plans, because I think he needed Peter's heart open even wider. And God wanted the believers that were with him to get it too. God wanted to expand hearts and minds. I think he's always doing that. He's always wanting to stretch us, to make us bigger, to give us more space in there. Peter's vision was of a tablecloth. Tablecloths cover tables. That's why they're called tablecloths. And tables hold food. In the tablecloth that Peter saw, there was enough for a feast, but it was the wrong kind of feast. It was the wrong kind of food. It was not fit for human consumption. It was just plain not right. According to the law, eh, eh, don't play this stuff. And Peter judged the contents of the table as fully wrong. But the voice said to him, get up, kill and eat. What God says is clean, is clean. Trust God's judgment. Peter makes the mental and the heart leap as he's standing in Cornelius' home. Even being in Cornelius' home made Peter and his friends unclean, according to the law. But in that moment, Peter seems to get it. He seems to understand that the vision isn't about animals, it's about people. Just like at the beginning, Jesus had said, you're not going to catch fish, you're going to catch people. He's like, oh yeah, that's it. It's about who gets to be at the table, not about what is on it. It's about making space for people who are not at all like Peter. And this is what I think Peter understood from what God was showing him. Having a vision is cool, but having the presence of God makes all the difference. Because now God goes a step further, because all of a sudden, God shows up. So this is what it says in Acts 10, uh, starting at verse 44. Peter wasn't planning to stop at this point, but the Holy Spirit suddenly interrupted and came upon all the people who were listening. They began speaking in foreign languages, just as the Jewish disciples had, did, had done on the day of Pentecost, and their hearts overflowed in joyful praises to God. Peter's friends from Joppa, all of them Jewish, all of them circumcised, were stunned to see that the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on outsiders. Peter turning to talk to his friends. Can anyone give a good reason why that we shouldn't ceremonially wash these people through baptism as fellow disciples? Anyone? After all, it's obvious they've received the Holy Spirit just as we did on the day of Pentecost. And so he baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the new disciples asked him to stay for several more days. Peter is moved. He is moved in his heart. He's gone to Cornelius' house and he's seen God powerfully show up for the outsiders, just like the Spirit had for them, the insiders. Peter knows what it means when the Spirit comes upon you. He remember, he, I can imagine him thinking back to, oh, I, I remember what happens. Oh, yeah, that was that day. The spirit came on me and then I was outside and then all of a sudden I was talking to the crowd and then 3,000 people started following you, Jesus. I get what happens when the Holy Spirit comes on somebody. He knows it means that God is with them big time. And it blows his previous generalization about Romans out of the water. 
and takes all of them down to the water to be baptized. But it wasn't just Peter who got it. It was his friends that got it. Peter's friend from Joppa, all of them Jewish, all of them circumcised, were stunned to see that the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on outsiders. Peter had had the vision. He had a head start on the other guys. And they were all like, what? Even them? What? Even Romans? Even our oppressors? Even the bad guy? Even the prisoners? Even the outcast? Even the, I mean, fill your own gap. Even the, where might you hesitate? Like they did. What generalized group of people give you pause? Even them? Yes, even them. And like Eden said last week, God does not need bouncers. God doesn't need the disciples to decide who's in and who's out, who is acceptable and who is not. Sure, Peter asks if anyone's got a good reason why these Romans shouldn't be baptized, but his question is not a question, it's a rhetorical question. He's like, he's looking at them going, anybody? Nah, thought not. God doesn't need us to, to decide about anyone. God doesn't need our permission to love anyone. It is not our job. God doesn't want us to do that. What arrogance to think that we might do that. Our job is to draw this really wide circled love and invite everybody into it because we have been included in an extraordinarily monumentally wide circle of love. He's drawn us into that. And again, to quote Eden from last Sunday, we are to create a safe harbor, a safe space. So let's uh, go back to the lectionary. So um, this is the next passage. That, um, these passages are like, blew my mind this week. So 1 John 5, um, I'd like you to imagine that we are one of Peter's bodies. We're standing there with Peter. We're staring at these Roman believers who are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. We've half heard Peter's vision, but we haven't quite understood it. I mean, he saw it and he was struggling. Um, and he tried to explain it as we were walking here. And But now here we are in a Roman villa looking at this group of Romans. <laughs> the little group of Jewish believers. They don't have this passage they were about to read to help them. But I wonder, I wonder if maybe the this passage was actually formed in this moment. I wonder if maybe John was there. Maybe he saw this all happen or he heard about it after and he wrote this in response. It might have happened. This is what happened. This is uh, what John says in 1 John 5, starting at verse 1. I'm going to share it. Okay. Every person who believes that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, is God born. Even then, they're your children too. Come on, really? These are our oppressors. Next verse. If we love the one who conceives the child, we'll surely love the child who was conceived. There's a clue in the who the one is there because it's in a capital letter. That is God. If we love God who conceives the child, surely we love the child who was conceived. Wait, what? 
We have to not only acknowledge that they're your children, but we have to love them too. Yes. Let's let John go on. The reality test on whether or not we love God's children is this. Do we love God? Do we keep his commands? The proof that we love God comes when we keep his commandments and they are not all troublesome. Jesus says that his burden is light. If we're tired and worn out from carrying heavy religious teachings, Jesus tells us to walk with him, to work with him and to watch how he does it. To learn unforced grace is a, life, a way of life. Jesus' command is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and love our neighbours as ourselves. And that's it. That's the whole thing. Jesus taught us who our neighbour was. Remember the Good Samaritan? And we're seeing it here again in these Romans who are clearly God's children too. The minds and hearts start to crack wide open. This is a beautiful gospel. This is good news for absolutely everyone. This is the rest of the passage from John, 1 John 5. It says, the power that brings the world to its knees. Every God-born person conquers the world's ways. The conquering power that brings the world to its knees is our faith. The person who wins out over the world's ways is simply the one who believes Jesus is the son of God. Jesus, the divine Christ. He experienced a life-giving birth and a death-killing death. Not only birth from the womb, but baptismal birth of his ministry and sacrificial death. And all the while, the spirit is confirming the truth, the reality of God's presence at Jesus' baptism and crucifixion, bringing these occasions alive for us. A triple testimony, the spirit, the baptism, the crucifixion, and the three imperfect agreements. Because of Jesus' life-giving birth from the womb of Mary and in the water of baptism, because of his death-filling death, We've come to see God's love for us. And it's a love that lays down its life for us. But it's not just Jesus that gets to lay down his life. Peter and his buddies lay down their preconceived ideas about Romans in that moment. They lay down their preconceived ideas about outsiders. They lay, their, lay, lay down their adherence to the law that they are holding dear because God had showed them and God has showed up. When God shows us and God shows up, it makes the difference. And in the last passage for today, Jesus says that we get to lay down our lives too. According to Jesus, no one has greater love than he lay down his life for his friends. So who is your metaphorical group of Romans? Who in your mind is outside of all of this? Who is the other to you? And I think the question Jesus is kind of posing is, who do you need to lay down your life for? So hold them in your mind as we read this last passage, which is John 15, 9 to 17. With Jesus speaking. I've loved you the way my father has loved me. Make yourselves at home in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain intimately at home in my love. That's what I've done. I've kept my father's commands and made myself at home in his love. I've told you these things for a purpose, that my joy might be your joy and your joy, holy mature. This is my command. Love one another the way I loved you. This is the very best way to love. Put your life on the line for your friends. You are my friends when you do the things I command you. I am no longer calling you servants because servants don't understand what their master is thinking and planning. Nope, I have named you friends because I've let you in on everything 
that I have heard from the Father. You didn't choose me, remember. I chose you and put you in the world to bear fruit, fruit that won't spoil. As fruit bearers, whatever you ask the Father in relation to me, he gives you. But remember the root command, love one another. Love one another the way that I loved you, is what Jesus is saying. This is the very best way to love. Put your life on the line for your friends. And remember how John explained who that was? If we love the one who conceives the child, we'll surely love the child who was conceived. There are no freaking outsiders. None. God's circle of love around everyone. Well, everyone was created in the image of God. We have this crazy thing of wanting to make circles inside the big circle. Humans are like a monstrous collection of Venn diagram makers. We draw a circle and we say, your skin tone means you fit in this circle. We draw a circle and we say, you love like this, you fit in this circle. Your gender difference, your sexual orientation puts you in this circle. We say, this group, of people is neurodivergent and we put them in another circle. We make another circle physically disabled people and so on and so on. We put religious people in another circle. We put conservatives in a circle and liberals in a circle and we draw these stupid circles everywhere forgetting that we are all inside this big massive circle that God says is all of us because we are all made in his image. Why do we do that? I only have rude words. I shouldn't say anything. Do we just want to have tidy circles? We are all children of God. And I think, I think we need to see that any circle we choose to create is within that big circle. Within the big circle that says God so loved the world. We are all made in his image with every kind of variation and beauty that God could bring up. I want an eraser to erase all those circles. I want an eraser to erase all the lines that we have drawn. And I want us to build a much bigger table to put down our circle drawing pencils and to pick up wood and a saw and nails and glue and make a big, big, big table. An expansive place where everyone can be all that they are with no having to stick inside their own little circle. This is how we lay down our lives for our friends. We put others' interests before our own and we love. The kind of agape love, which Eden explained last week, is not an affectionate feeling, but a life-saving action. The bigger picture that Peter got in the food on the table was a life-saving vision for Cornelius and his family, and then many more beyond. The action of Philip, who erased the exclusion circle so the Ethiopian eunuch might take the good news of God to the ends of the earth, which is what they thought Ethiopia was at that time. The action that he took in erasing that line meant that the good news got to the end of the earth. It was a life-saving business. We are in the life-saving business because that is our father's business. He is in the life-saving business and so we are too. I want to finish with a quote um, from a book called A Bigger Table, Building Messy, Authentic and Hopeful Spiritual Community by John Pavlovitz. 
and it says this. The early church never wanted for interpersonal conflict, but it also never shied away from it because this friction was and still is the necessary byproduct of continually inviting outsiders in and making room for the way they think, worship, live and see the world and allowing these things to alter the community. The church is not a static thing that we ask people to discard their individuality to join. It is a living organism that we invite them to connect with and change with their presence. It is always becoming. Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit. You're the one that made the difference for Peter and his friends that day by showing up, by your presence with them. You finally made the penny drop for Peter. You finally made the penny drop for those other guys. They got it because you showed up. So come Holy Spirit. As we head into year 16 of the bridge, may we be a place of welcome and acceptance and inclusion. May we be a church that is always becoming because we have heard you say to build a bigger table. You showed Peter how it was, and then you showed up. Peter showing up was proof to the Romans in Cornelius's house of your amazing love for them. May we be proof of your love where we find ourselves this week, with whomever we find in front of us. Come Holy Spirit, show us how to build a bigger table in your kingdom, and then would you show up? We need you. Never more than never more than now, and never less than now either. Um, Holy Spirit. Just want to share a challenge for this week. Hold on one second. It's opening. No, it's not. It's frozen. Oh, well, never mind. Let me tell you the challenge. Can you still see me? Can you still hear me? Yeah, we got you. You got me? Okay. Um, no, nah, it's not showing. Okay, anyway, let me tell you what the challenge is. The challenge is this. I want you to think, who are the Ethiopian eunuchs? Who are the Romans in the room? Who are those with whom you would rather not be seated? And what does Jesus want you to know about that? Who are the Ethiopian eunuchs? Who are the Romans in the room? Who are those with whom you would rather not be seated? And what does Jesus want you to know about that? <laughs> 